I am a literature and history student. I was interested in the late 14th century and 15th century, how women, um, the social conditions for women, and in particular women's religious writing. Now, I found it extremely difficult to address this because of the increasing pressure to read women's experiences through a very narrow ideological framework. After I had been penalised for saying sexual selection exists and for saying race um, is less significant than shared goals, and it was made very clear to me that I could not pass my master's, I could not do a PhD if I were to keep insisting on liberal uh, principles and on biology actually being a reality. So this is what has really driven me. I would like to go back, I would like to study history, literature, sociology, all of these things rigorously without having to read it through an ideological framework. And um, one of the uh, outcomes of the ideology that has sort of made its way into lots of uh, different fields uh, is the inability for people to be pushed back on, right? You, yes. You saw this with Brett Weinstein. Um, Pete, you want to talk about what his experience was? So it's, it's very difficult to convey this to people. I, I'm, let's see, how old am I? I'm 53, and I graduated from high school in 84 and college in 88, and it was a universe of difference. Let me give you a flavor for what happens on the campus today. Trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, there are a suite of institutionalized factors that are designed to protect people from ideas. And let's, let's not kid ourselves, that's exactly what this is. These, the, these policies have been implemented to protect people from ideas that they would find offensive. Well, the consequence of that there are many consequences of that. One of the consequences is that people become brittle. So when they hear an idea that they don't like, they can't handle it, they can't take it. They need puppies or rooms to go into with <laughs> coloring books. Another consequence of that is that they literally never hear the other side of an idea. So, and I'm, I'm not saying this as a conservative because I am not a conservative but I do think that conservative voices need a place in the academy in the same way that every other voice needs a place in the academy. And those voices aren't allowed by institutional design. And one more thing, asking for evidence for any of this stuff. What is your evidence for that? What is your evidence for the fact that microaggressions are gonna make people more cognitively resilient or whatever the claim is? Well, there is no evidence. And not only is there no evidence, there's actually evidence against it. But we have now created the cultural conditions under which asking for evidence for an institutionalized policy in the academy is considered racist. That's the story of Brett Weinstein at Evergreen State College, which maybe you've heard about. That made a lot of news. It was a small, super liberal college in Olympia, Washington. It completely melted down. I mean, you had kids patrolling campus with bats trying to drag people out of their cars. They took control of the faculty. They took control of the administration in particular. In the video, there was a kid yelling at a, somebody in a video, very near the end of the video, if you notice that or remember that. That was a student who was caught up in this aggressive like riot that took over the campus, yelling at the president of the college. 
telling him to shut up and that all things are terrible. They made him hold his hands to his sides. And so a friend of ours, Brett Weinstein, was a professor there. And they talked to, this was all embroiled around him and he was standing up against it more or less with no help. No one will stand alongside anybody who tries to push back against this. But, but let me finish, the, the, the racist issue was they said that the campus had become unfixably racist, even though it's one of the least racist campuses in the country. And Brett said, what's your evidence for that? And they said, asking for evidence is racism. <laughs> if you are willing to even ask the question, well, how do we know that, this, that there's racism on this campus? That's evidence of your own racism. That's correct. That's and correct. that comes from the literature as well. That comes and from the academic literature that we invested And that's in. the literature that you cited in the papers that you wrote. So can you talk a little bit about, um, first let's talk about what, um, what, when you started writing the papers, uh, what did you learn and what did you expect? When we first started writing the papers, we didn't expect much. Um, Peter was very optimistic and thought that we might be able to uh, get a couple of papers in, in a year, in kind of lower tier, mid-tiered academic journals. You know, there are better and worse ones. And I, th I said, no, we're going to get zero, and we're going to just torpedo our own careers and make fools of ourselves. And, and we, we thought, well, maybe we can just write kind of gibberish and see if they can tell something that, it, it, it's beyond nonsense. It's just completely worthless. Uh, words on paper with random citations attached. And it turns out that they were able to detect that. Uh, they, they did not let us do that. And that's where we failed and we realized, okay, these people can't be tricked. It's not um, any kind of nonsense that they're publishing. It seems to be a very specific kind of nonsense. So that's when we decided, oh wow, we need to learn this stuff. Let's actually see what this literature in the, in the academy says. Let's understand it ourselves and let's start to reproduce it by you say we cited their papers. We didn't just cite them, we used the ideas faithfully. We understood the arguments, the concepts, the, the entire project that they're engaged in, fed it back into their system, and let them validate that we had understood it correctly by publishing our papers at the highest level of uh, academic credibility. And maybe, Helen, could you speak to some of those papers? Yeah. I'm One thing that, that people are often, often say to us is, is how how can you say that this is coming from the universities? The average person isn't reading Foucault, they're not reading Judith Butler. But the problem is that these ideas, some very specific ideas which centre around the idea that knowledge is not something that exists and is to be found, and it can be correct, and it's the same for everybody, but it's something that is made. It's constructed by humans uh, with the way they talk about things, and at the moment, white, uh, straight, Western men are considered to be the powerful groups in society who have constructed knowledge artificially with language. So when, because we've got this kind of conception of society, if you don't understand how it works, this just looks mad. But if you, if you can get into the, the framework that they're trying to that they're working to, you can see a kind of internal consistency. It's, it's radically anti-evidence, anti-reason, but there is a consistency in there. So we see this idea that everybody is born and then dependent on their race, gender, sexuality, religion, they're plotted into a certain position on this grid of human beings and they learn to speak 
in relation to power. So if they're a white man, they will speak with power. If they're a woman of colour, they will speak to power. So we've got this very complicated understanding of going on. And this is where we get the ideas, which probably a lot of you have seen, where we talk about um, punching down and punching up. Has everyone heard these expressions, punching up and punching down? No. Nope. So, so th this, is, this is when it's considered to be allowable to um, discriminate against people who have less power than you, or to criticise them, and not allowable to criticise um, the other way round. <laughs> not, right. not allowable to criticise people with um, sort of less power than you. So we see this kind of what sometimes people have called reverse discrimination, but it really is just a, a form of, of discrimination. We, we see prejudice against straight white men. We see uh, very hostile attitudes towards knowledge understood to be Western. And we see a very sort of conciliatory and encouraging attitude towards knowledge which is understood to be women's knowledge, people of colour's knowledge, people from the East. So this is where you get the idea of not that there is truth, but that there is your truth and someone else's truth and, you know, the lived experience is primary and objectivity is no longer preference. Yes, I mean, it's really quite extreme. You get you get claims that science itself and reason are straight white male knowledge, that they are intrinsically oppressive. You get the concept of research justice in which they want to include in, um, in, in research, in knowledge production, they want to include experiences, feelings, uh, religious or cultural traditions, and they want it to be on the same level as truths which have been established provisionally by science. There isn't any need for a reasoned argument, there isn't any need for evidence. And the, the other um, thing that you've written about and talked about is the loss of the individual. Mm. So can you say just a little bit about that and then um, we'll talk more about idea laundering. Yeah, when this, um, this, this has been going on for about 30 years now. So when these disciplines started coming up, so intersectional feminism, post-colonial theory, critical race theory, queer theory, the first thing that they attacked was what was known as liberalism. Now, that's on the broadest sense. It doesn't mean left-wing, as often um, people assume in the US. It just means that sort of broad um, aim for equality and freedom for everybody. So they argued against this. They argued against the idea that we should see everybody as an individual, regardless of their race, gender, or sexuality, and we should make sure that every individual has the same access to everything that our shared society has to offer. Now, this requires, requires a commitment to understanding people as individuals and understanding us all as humans. There's a universality there. There's a humanism there. So these, these schools of thought, they, they immediately attacked this. They said this was essentially a myth, that the individual is really just um, straight white men putting their values onto everybody else and saying, this is how you should be. So they wanted to look at people instead as demographic groups. And they tied knowledge into this. So there's women's knowledge, and there's people of colour's knowledge, and there's trans people's knowledge. And these have been unfairly um, denigrated and, and disparaged. So now we need to elevate those. And so these concepts uh, about um, having different rules for different identities, and um, uh, you know that that uh, being a person of 
some marginalization allows one to be a victim of racism, but if you are in the dominant class, you, you can't be a victim of racism. Yeah. Um, the idea that, that uh, words are harmful, that words are violent. This is the stuff that has gotten into all kinds of areas um, outside of the academy and within. That's the idea laundering. So can you talk about how, what exactly the idea laundering is, how it happens, and what you uncovered? Yeah, so everybody kind of has a sense, I think. I don't know, because that movie that uh, was quite funny in the 90s, the uh, Office Space movie, maybe everybody doesn't know how, uh, how money laundering works. But with money laundering, the idea, of course, is that you obtain money in some illegitimate fashion, you put it through some channels so that it comes back to you, and now you have a legitimate paper trail that makes it look clean, and now you can use it. So it's a way of making dirty money look legitimate. Ideal laundering is this parallel concept our friend Brett Weinstein gave us to describe what we had uncovered. And ideal laundering is where you start with something like opinion or prejudice, and you write down a scholarly looking paper that looks very authoritative, and then you get it published as, as scholarship that the academy verifies. It gets used to set educational curricula and, and gets taught as truth, as fact. Once you take these ideas and prejudices and then you can, you can push through, get them published as though they're scholarship, people will refer to those as though they are legitimate knowledge. And so how we know that what we uncovered is a process of idea laundering is that we wrote our papers in pretty much the same way. We wrote 20 papers over the course of 10 months. And aside from those joke papers we started with, once we started doing this very seriously, the program was consistent. We started with the conclusion we wanted. For example, um, that, that men should be trained like dogs to stop rape culture. Use dog training methods to stop men from participating in rape culture. We started with the conclusion and we used the existing scholarship faithfully and accurately to build a nonsense argument to get to that conclusion. That's not how you do knowledge, right? You can't do it backwards. You don't start with what you want to be true and write a bunch of bull crap and then send it off. So you would hope that the uh, peer reviewers, the editors of these academic journals, the people who validate, yeah, this was good scholarship, it should be published, we should take this seriously, this is knowledge. And one of our reviewers did call one of our papers an important contribution to knowledge, as a matter of fact. What, <laughs> that threw me off completely. <laughs> the paper cracked me up. So uh, when you have this kind of a situation where you can pass that stuff off at the highest level and it becomes something that people teach and people can say there's a study and we're going to follow what that says, this is true, you have this situation where people don't question it. You have the highest level of, of rigor saying this is the fact of the matter. But when you start from your conclusion, there's no trust in that. You could write anything. So, oh, that's what I was saying. We thought that we could find, we, that they would catch this, right? That they'd say, wait a minute, this is, these papers don't make sense. They're about awful things. They're crazy. Sometimes the data that we made up for them uh, are literally impossible. And instead, they didn't. They had no idea. And as Helen was just saying, there's a reason for that. It's not that they were asleep on the job. It's the peer review system was working as intended. The process was working as intended, but the people operating that system fully buy into the idea that if you say something bad enough about men, like that they should be trained like dogs, or that you say something bad enough about white, white men in college, that, like, that they should consider it an educational opportunity to be chained to the floor, 
to experience reparations and that you shouldn't comfort them for this because they have to be left to sit in their own discomfort so they'll learn what privilege really feels like being on the downside of privilege really feels like. They think these are great ideas. So of course they validate them. It's, they have become lost by having swum in this kind of academic inbreeding pond for maybe what, 50, 60 years now. So the, can, can I just quickly, uh -huh, add, yeah. I just want to add to that just to say, if you really think about it, my son is off to college this year. If you really, really think about that, a bunch of people have some moral impulse. They get together, they find someone else who's an academician. This person sets up a journal. They have some idea that's total, some total freaking lunatic nut job idea. They get together, they write this up, they go to their buddy, their buddy makes a journal, they take these articles, they publish them, they get seven of these in in seven years, they get tenure, which is a job for life. They then get together in communities with other people who have published in this, and let's make no mistake about it. These are purely ideological ideas coming from a fringe section of the far left. So we then have individuals based on idea laundering who have created an entire culture in the academy. And whenever they're asked about something, well, how do you know that? They just point to the, to the piece of information. Well, I know that because it's here. Mm. Yeah, but that whole thing is made up. I can give one, a the, No, you go ahead. Yeah, one particularly good example of this, because this is how knowledge is meant to work. It's meant to build. But if it's starting from an ideological premise in the first place and then building on that, we're just getting towards increasing insanity. So one very popular text within um, feminist studies is called Doing Gender. Now, this one starts with the assumption that men and women are psychologically and cognitively exactly the same, and that the reason that different gendered behaviours exist is because society has socialised women into being subordinate and men into being dominant. So this is the, the thesis of this. Since this paper, there have been at least a dozen which explicitly draw on those same concepts. There's now undoing gender and redoing gender and doing gender in the workplace. And, and so it looks as though it has begun with this one solid idea and then built upon the knowledge, but it is ideology building on ideology until you end up with some completely bizarre conclusions, um, such as that uh, heterosexual men are only attracted to women uh, because they've been, been taught to be. There's, you know, the, the idea that we are a sexually reproducing species isn't something that can be considered. And to give you an idea, doing gender is not some fringe paper. It's been cited over 30,000 times. Over 30,000 times. And as what Pete was just saying, I just did a case study. I was asked to review a book about critical dietitian studies and critical nutrition studies. And in the book, the, 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 the authors try to lay out the history of critical nutrition studies and explicitly say, well, we tried to publish this stuff in existing nutrition journals and they wouldn't take it. They said, this isn't nutrition. So we made our own journal called <laughs> Critical Nutrition Studies. It's in the book. And so we made our own journal to validate our own ideas. And now we're seven years down the road we're growing, we're now having books published, we're having conferences. It has all the appearances of being legitimate academic stuff right. that people take very seriously. And yet it's, I mean, the whole book, this book, just to give you some idea, is not just a political tract. This is, chapter nine of that book, I was shocked. 
is, remember, this is a book about nutrition, and it's about food distribution, and it calls upon Lenin <laughs> as a model for how we should do food distribution. I mean, there's few characters in history um, <laughs> who you maybe would cite less vigorously than Lenin for a successful nutrition, nutrition uh, regimen. Just piggybacking on that, which I, which I think is really important, is when, when you take a step back and when you see what's going on here, we're not the first people to point this out. Charlotte Stern wrote a, a, a paper pointing this out. Many people have pointed this out. Nobody knew what to do about it. And those people who maybe had an idea what to do about it, they were either being investigated under a Title IX violation or they had been, uh, they didn't get tenure because if you don't have an idea that's morally fashionable, you can't publish in a journal. And even if you do, like Rebecca Tuvel and Hypatia, in the Q&A we can talk about that, even if you do, your argument, uh, Bruce Gilley, oddly enough, is a professor at my university from uh, Portland State University, wrote a paper in defense of colonialism. Well, the paper, he just coined the realm, he played the game, he published the paper, people went crazy, like literally berserk. Death threats. Death, Death threats to the journal editor. Not, the, these folks do not play by the rules of engagement. Right? So let's, let's one, one more quick thing, and I know I'm talking about one thing. The problem <laughs> is that there's no counterweight to this. Nobody is doing anything against this, and it is metastasizing. And we have to do something about this. Let's just um, briefly talk about where we see these ideas outside of academia. For example, um, in the New York Times or the Washington Post. For example, in business. For example, in K-12 education. There was an article in the Washington Post that was written by one of the editors of one of these journals that we were investigating that was titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? In the Washington Post. That's a national daily newspaper. Uh, I get contacted, I mentioned at the beginning this lawyer that reached out to me from something like the Canadian equivalent of the Bar Association, but I get emails, we all get emails from people in college, students, professors who, uh, how do I stop what's going on in college? The law thing I mentioned. We got contacted by the Parliament of the European Union. This stuff's rampant. How do we stop it? I get contact, and that, so that's big stuff. Google, it's all over the news, the stuff this has been happening with, with Google. That's important, they control how we access information. But then I get contacted also, or we, it even makes the news. There's a knitting forum, a knitting forum online. People go post their patterns that they knit. I don't know if somebody posted, like, knitted a MAGA scarf or something, I don't know, but somehow this turned into a political meltdown, and the knitting forum is now completely eaten up with this political thing. A outdoor hiking group. I, one thing after another after another. Lawyers calling me saying we're suing a school system that's discriminating. Can you check over what we've done to say, you know, this is why the science doesn't work. This is absolutely everywhere. It's top, it's bottom, it's left, it's right, it's inside, outside, it's affecting your life, it's on TV, it's everywhere and it's amazing. Uh, just recently, the, the superintendent of uh, a school uh, district down Valley uh, wrote a piece uh, entitled something like, it's time for us to examine our privilege, yeah. something like that. Yeah, you um, and he cited Peggy McIntosh's unpacking the, can you just talk a little bit about that, Helen, because this is your, and this is something probably relevant to people here who have children or grandchildren in that school system. Um, where does that come from? What, what was that paper that he's drawing on? And is that, 
good scholarship. Right, that, that one was, um, yeah, Peggy McIntosh, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. So in this one, she has an image of, um, of a knapsack in which lots of um, privileges I'll tell you, white people have certain privileges and we're not even aware of them. So she lists things that we might not recognise as privilege, such as, um, you know, we're rarely, white people rarely experience being the only white person in a room. And it, it can be as, as vague as this or it can be um, more sort of statistical, looking at different balances of different people in different jobs. But it, it starts with the assumption that simply having white skin is a privilege. So this is a very sort of simplistic categorical look. It's um, one thing that is very notable about this type of scholarship is that economic um, and educational uh, privilege is not really an issue. It's very much about sex, gender, race, sexuality. They're not really looking at the, uh, the possibility that perhaps a black um, millionaire could have a more privileged than a white homeless person. So it gets very, very messy like that. And then this idea of Macintoshes has been then problematized further. And they've said, well, if you, you can't just take off your knapsack and say, I recognize I have privilege. Now you have to accept complicity. All white people are complicit in racism. This is Barbara Applebaum. Uh, because they have been born into this system and they are speaking within it and they are perpetuating it without even knowing that they're doing that. You've probably noticed the really neurotic focus on language at the moment, the really uncharitable readings of anything that could be considered racist or any kind of criticism, well, that's because of race, that's because of gender. And this is coming from this conception that there is always a power imbalance. One of the rules um, of the, um, I can't remember which university it was, their anti-racist rules was the question is not did racism, racism take place, it's how did racism manifest in this situation. So we are, as, as Jim was saying, we're starting with the conclusion and then you have to look at the interaction and when you've found a way to say that it is racist, then you, you've got it right. So um, just one, two more questions and then we'll open it to the Q&A. Um, the pushback that you get a lot when you talk about grievance studies, first of all, is the terminology grievance studies. Mm -hmm. And second of all is that it sounds or it can sound to people like you're asserting that there isn't racism or that racism isn't a problem um, and that grievance studies is a way of making this stuff up. So can you just say what, your, what you really mean by grievance studies, what it's distinct from and what you believe about the um, academic fields that need to uh, have this rooted out? Yeah, I mean, we've, we have been criticised for the idea of grievance studies and that, that we're saying there are no legitimate grievances, but we have been very clear from the beginning that the kind of scholarship that we're looking for is the kind that assumes a grievance to exist before it begins and then it finds it. So we're looking very much at specific branches of scholarship which come from those postmodern ideas of knowledge and power and language, that they don't want evidence, they don't want reason, there's this sort of focus on language, there's this blurring of, of categories of things that are generally accepted as true. There's a profound cultural relativism. This is right for you, it's wrong when you do it because of the group you're in. There's no sign of the individual, there's no sign of the universal, it's all about identity. So we would, one of the main reasons that we are criticizing this, and, and for me, particularly in my job, 
hopefully as a feminist historian, is that I want to be able to look at gender issues, at sexuality issues, at racial issues rigorously and not through one particular ideology which doesn't accept that biological differences exist between men and women, which doesn't allow for a sort of universal knowledge that anybody can access regardless of their identity. So we are the last people who would want to stop rigorous scholarship into social justice issues. But that movement, that scholarship now known as social justice is really counterproductive to any aims for a just society. And so that leads right into the last question before we go to the Q&A, which is what's next for the three of you? What are you working on and how can everyone here and anyone who wants to help? So since, the, since we came out and told the world that we had done these fake papers, um, we've each put a lot of effort. We haven't just kind of rested on our laurels or hidden away. We've put a lot of effort into trying to understand the scholarship as Helen can articulate very, very clearly how this mindset works, how uh, these views are, are able to be understood and how they differ from what you might consider to be that universal liberal. When we say universal liberal here, again, like she said, not left wing, we mean like the constitution. Okay, so that which is in the constitution, you know, we believe everybody's created equal and so on, that's universal liberal. The, the values that were in the American Revolution are what we're talking about. And so um, we've tried to learn what's going on so we can explain this. And we want to be able to explain it clearly. We want to be able to provide resources for people like these lawyers who keep reaching out to me, even the hiking club that reaches out to me, to say that this is how you can say, look, this is political, it's not science. This is the difference. This is very clear. We want to be able to articulate an alternative. Uh, we want to give people, one of the things that we've brought up a few times is that this uh, ideology doesn't like disagreement. It doesn't allow it. It shouts it down. So Peter and I wrote a book almost simultaneously with writing the other papers um, that's called How to Have Impossible Conversations, How to Talk to People You Disagree With. Helen and I are writing a book together, mostly Helen, about how to explain what's going on with this scholarship, where it came from, how it developed, what its core ideas are, so people can understand, look, this is not what you think it is. Meanwhile, we're also trying to build a media site so that we can get our ideas aggregated out there in one place where people can come and see and access those resources. We want to eventually even build a foundation to where you can give grants and really grow into something that can, can push back at this while there's a chance. And, and two more things, so Mike Nana, whose video you saw in the beginning, he's created a feature-length documentary that we would like to go into the belly of the beast at uh, universities in the English-speaking world, show the film and then be there for the Q&A, and then build a movement while we go. I'm also writing a book, <coughs> the tentative title is Teaching in an Age of Ignorance. <coughs> Excuse me. And right now, the dominant orthodoxy in every single teacher education program in the entire English-speaking world is based upon a book called Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That has then morphed into an industry of grievance studies where folks are constantly obsessively looking for sexism and bigotry and racism at the expense of learning, well, what do we do if there's a disruptive student? How do we talk about grades? So it's gonna be a counterweight that's accessible to teachers and, and people teaching professors 
in those pre-service teacher education programs to know you have options. You do not have to go along with the party line. There are other things that you can focus upon. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, that is really essential now is a lot of the reason that we're not seeing enough uh, pushback on these ideas from liberal academics is because there isn't articulated a good alternative. So p people don't want to oppose what seems like social justice. It's called social justice. It's called gender equality, racial equality, LGBT equality. People are, don't want to be seen to be acting against this. What is really important is that we break down how this is working, that we show that it is not liberal, that it is extremely illiberal, and that we can counter it, those of us on the left or the right who believe in equal opportunities and, and a fair level playing field for everyone and general freedoms to express beliefs, we can point out that this is running against that. Great. Um, Alan, yeah. I, I may have missed it before when we were trying to fix the sound. What have you individually gone through because you've done this yeah. in your institutions. Please let everybody hear that. Let's end with Pete. Let's, yeah. let's start with Pete. I think, for me, I am, I'm an independent writer. I have, uh, nobody can fire me. I work for myself. So I have a certain amount of freedom that um, academics and universities don't have. For me, there has been, um, just extreme misrepresentations of my views. There has been, this is how fascism works, a hashtag attached to my name. I have people making um, accounts, cloning my family members' accounts in order to um, abuse me online. But this is, you know, th this is abuse. I am, I am not in the same amount of danger as Peter is. I just have to log out quite a lot. <laughs> I've had very similar. I'm also independent, um, which gives me the, the freedom of not having one of these diversity boards over my head. Like, but you weren't independent when you started. No, I was. I was. I was. So I was free from that. What, I've experienced nearly everything the same as Helen has on social media, but I've, um, maybe because of my context in the United States, I don't know, I've lost a lot of friends. <laughs> People who have looked at what we've done even tried to hear our motivations. No, we want the scholarship to be better to help solve these problems. If racism is a problem, and there's no reason to say that it's not, we should know the most about it, the most accurately, and, and try to get it right so that we can actually solve the problems that are associated with it. If sexism is a problem, the same thing, and so on. We should get this right. And I try to articulate this to my, my friends and sometimes my family, and they say things like, I don't think I can share a room with you anymore. I don't think I can come to Thanksgiving if you're going to be there. Uh, I'm almost hesitant to give my response because it's just so fantastical. <laughs> no normal sane person would believe anything I'm about to say. Um, I have been the target of a persistent harassment and smear campaign. It actually predated this. One of the things that launched it off, are you familiar with James Damore? The is Google the memo. Do, do, is everyone familiar with the Google memo? Not everybody is. Okay. Just give well, a quick. So I, I've been the subject of uh, people have followed me into restrooms to beat me up. Uh, people have, have they beaten you up? Nobody has beaten me up yet. I fortunately, when they followed me into a restroom, I was happened to be have been with my jujitsu training coach, who's a black belt in Brazilian jujitsu. So I don't think that would have uh, gone well for him unless he had a gun. And 
Portland is hard to get a concealed carry. Uh, my, my, the, my colleagues, the faculty members, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say they have a pathological hatred of me. Um, <laughs> the Vanguard. Yeah, so there's been a hit piece on me with quote-unquote anonymous scholars in the newspaper. I find my, my and Mike Nader's YouTube uh, channel shows this, I find pictures of myself over a campus with a big nose saying that I'm a Trump supporter, which is false. I'm pro-life, I'm Republican, whatever craziness that they want to say. Um, my family has been targeted. Uh, I've been the subject of repeated Title IX violations, one big Title IX violation. Um, Title IX violations are federal, federal rules. So you've uh, been accused by... I've been accused. I, mean, I, I challenge anybody in this room to come up with something I have not been accused of. <laughs> I was, at one point I was walking around and people would come up to me and say, like, what is this about you beating your family? <laughs> I've been called, on a regular basis, I'm called a Nazi, a grifter, a moron. Uh, I, but anyway, but the point of this is, you know, it, it's not about woe is me. You know, look, I'm living a good life. I'm in Portland. Uh, I'm taking a year off from my work this next year to work on this. I could be in a refugee camp. This is not what this is about. This is about fighting this nonsense. This is about my kids in school, your kids in school, and we have to do something about this. I'm telling you, there is an urgency of this, and if nothing is done, this problem is not going to solve itself. This is not going to be like, oh, tomorrow we're going to wake up, it's going to go up. No, it's only going to get worse. I it's mean, like in I, your, your kids, it's a, the class, that, what was it, your history class was all some kind of like feminist geography or something. Yeah, so my son, is, I just mentioned he's going to college this year, he is, this kid is an expert in the civil rights movement, which is great. He's an expert in the, the, the Black Panthers, which is probably pretty good. Uh, I don't know what he could find on a map. I don't know if he knows anything else. Every Every single class, from his geography class. Well, yeah, it's every, every, in every class, all it is is this, literally every class, even his English classes. It's not the, the literature that was produced during a certain period. It is pushing a moral point of view on people. And if you do not ascribe to that moral point of view, you get graded down. And even math, even math. I was a, a, when I did teach in the university a number of years ago, I taught mathematics. And I was recently asked to take a look at, I haven't dove deeply into it yet, I haven't had the chance, it was just a few days ago, uh, to look at a book that's recently come out that's getting a lot of attention, that's urging math instructors to make class time be about social justice issues instead of, say, algebra. Let's step are, away are you from guys understanding that basically what you're talking about is fascism? <laughs> that this is basically a bunch of people that are promulgating fascism <laughs> and they've taken a, a different way to go about it? That, they, that this is the far left that started this over 100 years ago, and their, their, um, their goals were to take over academia. They've succeeded. To, 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 to take over um, the, the media, to take over Hollywood, and to basically use those as a way to basically control uh, our country or the world, for that matter. That's what fascism is. They, they called that the long march through the institutions. Yeah, there's a very strong political faction. I don't think that we need to see this as, as the whole of the left. I think there's a lot more um, pushback coming from the left for this. There's um, 
particularly the economic left, who is um, it's quite opposed to the identitarian left. That's the old socialists. They're not very happy about this. The liberal left is also pushing back at it. There's the, the centrist and, and, of course, the, the centre-right who are all making legitimate arguments against it. It isn't that this is a huge um, faction that half of the world believes in. It is that it has undue institutional power which can affect the kind of judgments that people are making of things. So it, it, it isn't, you could probably go through your life without ever experiencing this, but then you might not, because if it comes to a point where somebody wants to accuse you of having said something sexist, something racist, if they want to problematize what you've done, there is no way um, to legitimately counter that. Yeah, if, we, if I could say one other thing is about what we're hoping we can do with the work we've taken up since this project came out is there's clearly this chilling culture where people can't speak their minds and they get shouted down or they're just afraid they're going to get shouted down or accused of some horrible thing if they speak their minds and push back and discuss. And so we know that despite very few people being willing to put their name to it and say, you know what, I disagree. We know they're out there because they tell us and then they say, don't tell anybody I told you. Okay. And yeah, so we want, to, we want to create enough of, of, of awareness of what's going on and enough people who are willing to say, you know what, I don't want to go along with that, to where those other people who we know are a lot of them will stand up against it. Because if this is fascism, that is the only way to stop it, is to get to where people feel confident to say, no, I'm not going along with it before it seizes control. So there's a, um, a concept, um, it's called preference falsification. This is the idea that people pretend to have a preference, pretend to think something that they don't think because they think everybody else thinks that thing. And that's what happens on college campuses that it's likely that the uh, faction that actually believes these notions is very small, but they're very loud and they're vicious. And so people are afraid to speak up, and they will then not just uh, be silent, but in some cases will say that they go along, say things that go along with it, even when they don't actually, and they'll even become enforcers. In one case, um, somebody wrote a paper uh, that got published in a, in a journal, and then she was just lambasted for it. And she got emails from people who said, I'm sorry I signed the letter condemning you for this, but I had to, you know, kind of a thing. So that's the sort of environment that we're in, and the work that they're doing is geared toward providing support and resources and... Um, and an alternative. And an alternative, but also knowledge that other people are out there so that they, yes. there becomes a tipping point so yeah. that people don't feel like they need to be silent. Alexis, you, you wanted to ask a question. Are there any institutions that, that have stood up to this, or is it all individuals? Yeah. I think the University of Chicago did Chicago. well recently, didn't they? Yeah. I think there's, there does seem to be a pattern in which the most elite universities are having the biggest problem. So in the UK where I am, we see the big protests at Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, whereas the, the more um, sort of what, what I think you would call community colleges here are much more full of, of working class people who are trying to achieve a certain knowledge base and they're less inclined, even though they're more often um, a higher degree of um, minority groups, they're less inclined to get theoretical about ideology. They don't have the luxury of being able to kind of 
waste an education by doing that. So by contrast, while this hopeful vision of a couple of universities speaking up, we've recently become, this is a strange, strange turn in our lives, like, let me assure you, that, but we are um, all three, I know this is maybe not the room to say it, liberal atheists, and we're not abashed about it. We're quite open with everybody about it, and we've become quite uh, popular with the uh, religious right. They've reached out to us in droves, and they tell us, even at the Baptist seminaries, the Southern Baptist Convention seminaries, this is taking over. This is becoming what's taught at the Southern Baptist Convention seminaries. And there is a schism right now in evangelical Christianity that you know, folks know about, but on one side of the schism, there's woke Christianity. We can talk about that. This is the Q&A. This is your Q&A, so if you have any questions. Who, who has heard, who's heard the word woke? Who knows what woke means? Raise your hand if you know what woke means. Okay, who's so heard not, the not, word, not everybody who's knows heard the word born again. <laughs> Who knows what born again means? Okay, so woke means born again, where you see things through this lens where everything's racist. You woke up. You yeah. woke up and realized our society, underneath the surface, as Helen was describing, just under the surface, manifest, uh, imminent is the word they, that's for it. Just under the surface, there is racism. It's not did racism occur? It's how did it manifest in the situation? Now let's look for the evidence. And sexism. And sexism and homophobia, you name the bigotry. It ex exists permeating throughout the entire society and it just, every time it manifests up, it's like if you got the measles, for example, right? You get a lot of bumps all over your body. You can't look at this bump and that bump and say those bumps are from something different. You have to say that there's a systemic disease under the surface and every time there's a bump, that's evidence. So they see every instance of racism. You have one guy who loses it and starts calling people words that nobody should say. And all of a sudden that's proof that our society as a whole and every yeah. white person is racist. When you come to realize that that's how it really works, you're woke. Let's look back 30 years ago, no internet. Could this have evolved this way? I don't think so, personally. I don't think that this could have taken off to the level of cultural hegemony that it's achieved without the internet to spread it and to allow people to gather in like-minded uh, enclaves and share these ideas and develop these ideas without any kind of pushback. That said, it was certainly gestating in the universities. And mm -hmm. the 1990s were primarily when this, the, these kind of wacky ideas, you hear the word postmodern, that's something to do with these French philosophers going back to the 60s, 1968 May riots in France in particular, has something to do with it. These ideas, they had this idea of reconceiving of the society in terms of power relations and, and the way that language constructs power as Helen's described. And then in the 90s, well this idea was to deconstruct how that power works and they just kind of pulled everything apart. Mm -hmm. So that's self-limiting. But then in the 90s, you had a new crop of scholars who accepted those ideas because they'd been idea laundered for 20 or 30 years. And they said, you know what, we need to make this applicable. We need to find ways to use this to solve the problems. And this is, these have always been ideas that were associated with fringe left-wing politics. The original postmodernists were disaffected communists, for example. And they were trying to find ways to re-describe how power holds people down in society and cheats certain people. And then you had these people coming along in the 90s and saying, you know what? We've been doing this liberal project. This would be a scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw, who has uh, an enormous amount of, of uh, clout. And she's a very, very famous scholar, huge amount of influence. And she says things like, up until now, we've been using liberalism and trying to erase 
significance from, from racial categories. So you're a black person, so what? You know, you are a person who happens to be black. That's the liberal idea. And this got replaced with no. We're going to use I am black. I'm going to lean into my blackness and make it an identity category that's very important to me so that we can do identity politics. And the methods we'll use are these truths from postmodern thought. That's what happened in the 1990s. So maybe, because the, the universities were, were going that way even by then. Did some, somebody had a question over here. <laughs> First, find the academy. Who are they? And is there a counterbalance that can be created uh, that people of your like mind can get published? <laughs> We certainly hope so. I mean, when we're talking about the academy, we're talking about the universities, we're talking about academic publishing, we're talking about all the courses and papers and ideas that are being considered legitimate by the academic system. So this doesn't mean that everybody in the universities is buying into those. It means they're somewhat constrained by them. I particularly have some hopes of student groups that have been writing to me, asking me if I can come and speak to them, if I can send them information. And I think this is where we need to focus a lot of our attention is on the students now who are saying we're not, we're not going along with this. So I'd, I'd like to spend some more time in the coming year into thinking about how we can support them. I think the counterbalance exists and it's, it can't speak. <laughs> it's lost its voice, it's afraid to speak. And so to create the counterbalance is to answer the hard questions that prevent people from being able to speak and provide them with the, the, both the resources and the awareness of other people who are willing to speak to speak out. I do not actually think that this is a, a wide majority of people that are, are taking over the institutional parts of the universities, for example. I, I think that it's a relatively powerful fringe who's been enforcing their rules with, with something like the cultural equivalent of a bludgeon, and that if people are allowed to actually start speaking freely about this, that the counterweight exists, it's us. It's you guys in, as part of the culture. It's everybody who's talking to their kids when they go, to, go off to college or when they're in high school and they're hearing this stuff. It's the, the professors who actually believe in the liberal ideals who c c do sometimes criticize these ideas, but many more want to and don't feel like they can. If they can be uh, made to feel comfortable, then I think there would be a big pushback, a very uh, prominent left-wing psychologist reached out to me. He doesn't buy into this whole really hardline, almost borderline fascist approach and said, here's where I get caught. I believe that there are issues relevant to social justice and I think everybody should be concerned about them. Issues concerned with racism, sexism, and th so on as they still manifest in society. And I don't think that this very radical revolutionary agenda that sees things in these very peculiar ways has it right, but what do I do? And so if somebody can articulate an alternative, I think there's an army of people on the left, certainly across the entire spectrum of the right, throughout the center, who would be more than ready to start speaking up and to, to frankly marginalize these fringe ideas that are very radical and, and that I was gonna say that they're kind of um, positioned against reality, but they reject the idea that we can know anything about reality anyway. So they're against reality, if you will. So part of this is the, ide is the ideology Yes. But the other part, the majority of it, it people fear to speak out against it. Yes. And, and what you're doing, 
and what you're initiating here, which is probably going to take some time, but seems like our last best chance to do this, is to bring on one person at a time in the academy or small numbers of people who begin to speak up and then join you and effect the change. Because I don't see any college presidents who are going to be willing to get on this bus until we get more people. So I think we have a teacher, I think, back here who wanted to know. Uh, okay, these two. But I, I have kids, uh, children 12 and 13, and they happen to be in, that, in the RE1 school district, which is the salt carving up one where the superintendent just wrote this column last Thursday in the Post Independent, which is the Glenwood paper. As a parent of 12 and 13 year olds, how do I mitigate for this now? I mean, I'm a liberal. Husband's a conservative. We've got that. That's fine. <laughs> but how do you, you know, at this point in time, help them kind of understand? What was the article about? I don't know. Okay. She'll send it to you. <laughs> because you're, you're talking about it. Not everybody right. Well, you'll have to, I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked with that, but it was basically about educational quality by examining our privilege. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm the parent of a, a 15 year old, so I'm 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 having to look at this quite a lot at the moment as well. They just had diversity week, and I'm I can obviously there's there's always talking to children. There, there's my daughter and I we we talk about what does freedom mean, what does equality mean. She's understanding that um, what is known as reverse racism or reverse sexism doesn't suddenly become okay. So I think if you can understand these ideas yourself, if you can understand what social justice, how that sees the world to work, and how this is in opposition to general liberalism and, um, and sort of fairness, then I, th I think you can inoculate them to a certain extent. Another thing that I am doing is every time we get a message back from the school which says we're going to be looking at diversity or equality, then I ask to see exactly what that is, and I ask them to justify of why they are teaching it in this way. And I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm a real pain in the bum and that they're, they're doing less than, that they know that there are people out there who are going to object if this is too ideological. And I have said, because we in the UK, we don't have um, the separation of church and state. We have Christianity in schools, but generally we have a rule and, and it's stronger in America that you should not be teaching children in a publicly funded school any explicit religious or ideological dogma as truth. So I think taking that tact is important. There are certain trigger words or certain words that you can hear that embed... Let's not say trigger. Let's say <laughs> other words. There are words that you can hear that when you hear those, those are Trojan horse words for ideologies. They're smuggling in an ideology with those words. One of those words is equity. Equity doesn't mean what you think it means. What do you think equity means? <laughs> what does it mean? Stocks. Huh? Oh, stocks. Oh, shit, it's stocks. <laughs> <laughs>
Right. Not equities. <laughs> equity. But that's that's very good because that's what that's what one of the strategies is to either change the meaning of meanings of existing words or smuggle in uh, terms. Equity means it, equity is not equality. Equality is treating everybody equally. Equity is making up for past injustices. It's adjusting shares so that there is the semblance of equality. Yeah, that's why we were able to get the idea in that Jim mentioned about putting white people, white heterosexual males in particular, on the floor in chains as a form of exper experiential reparations and then having the teacher not uh, answer their email. And just as is worth noting, I said to, well, I think it was Jim when I wrote this, there's no way they're going to put this paper in. There's no way they're going to accept this. So why don't we soften this? And I think I put in the first version was something like, oh, we need to be compassionate. Tell they said, no, we don't need, do not be compassionate. That would recenter the needs of the privileged if you were compassionate to them. So and our ideas weren't crazy enough. Mm, I, I just, uh, so, so but, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say to Rachel, because um, your two boys at, at 12 and 13, they should be able to understand um, and take in Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors. Now, that is a wonderful book, which I think is is absolutely perfect for young people who don't really know um, how the, the system of liberal science, how liberal secular democracies have worked and why we should support and defend freedom of speech. It sets it out brilliantly. Yes, there are lots of hands. <laughs> yeah, Alan, we'd better are you, are try and be concise. The, are we like there's somebody in the back. I think we should have Bridget just pick people here now so Bridget. she can see them. Yes. Okay. Everybody stand up. You mentioned 30 stand up. Stand up so we can hear you. You mentioned 30 years ago. Mm. Who is he there who is driving this and what's the motive? So if and we... Why 30 years ago? Um, well, 30 years ago a change happened where the original postmodernists, their ideas, they couldn't really be used. So there was a shift 30 years ago just on the end of the civil rights movements to try and keep pushing for gender equality, racial equality, and it took on these ideas of power and knowledge and language. So they've that was a, a really sort of intellectual change, but what that did was it made it more user-friendly, it made it more accessible to activists and to the general public. They could, they could use these ideas. This has developed over the last 30 years even more, and it's become even simpler and more, more solid. So a good example of this is Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. That was a, a bestseller for over six months. It's got very, very clear um, tenets in it that um, anybody who doesn't accept that, uh, any white person who doesn't accept that they're racist is just fragile and needs to address this fragility. So this, this has just continued growing and it's continued building on itself, getting more and more certain, more and more simple, until now at least we do have these statements of absolute certainty which we can argue with, which we can disagree with. So they are also, to say who are these people, um, there's no need to rattle off a list of names. I can start doing one if you want. But they are people who are working in the one sector of the academy that can be called the theoretical humanities, which most people call cultural studies. So this would be stuff like post-colonial studies, queer studies, critical race studies, fat studies, fat studies <laughs> disability studies. All these things that in the video at the beginning you saw were studies, 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 studies. This is in, in broad 
broadest umbrella terms, it's cultural studies fields, which approach social science issues from a perspective that doesn't use science at all. Mm -hmm. right, and, and the other uh, area is education. And education, So education totally. schools are absolutely rife with this, which then means that the people who then go into K-12 teaching have been taught this kind of pedagogical method. Also, it means the, the student-facing um, deans and other administrators like resident deans, et cetera, those are, they're not really, um, they don't report to anybody. So they're able to create, if your child goes to college, uh, a resident dean can create an entire culture in the dorm that's based on this no, non-science. And of so course a lot of- before kids go to college, we've lost already. No, no, not, I wouldn't be that, that pessimistic, but I think they can certainly get exposed to those yeah. ideas before then. And, exactly. and of course, another, another um, place of the, where a lot of this sort of powerful um, social justice stuff is coming from is, the, is, the, is social media. It is the internet. It's where you are quite likely to be publicly shamed if you say something that's, um, that's considered problematic. Yeah, in fact, um, kids aren't, Kids aren't as uh, naive sometimes as we think they are. Kids kind of know when they're being lied to, so this is one of the big risks. If they know they're being lied to repeatedly about issues about sexism or racism or whatever, that's all the more likely that they're just going to ignore that which matters about those subjects, right? right? So there's, it's not just that, oh no, this, there's this ideology crept in and it's gonna you know, change the way people think. There's also the possibility that there's going to be a backlash that comes that's not sensible. That, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. So um, maybe we should just take one or two more questions and then let people just talk to you after. Sure. Do any of these journals report to use scientific methodology and studies uh, to justify their conclusions? Not the ones we're criticizing. No, that they, they are not. They are skeptical of science as a, a valid methodology. So the studies, what you put in them was not based on any studies? Well, they are studies, but they're not scientific. So we're, we're sort of picking up on, um, on concepts and theoretical um, so, uh, truth claims, really. Could give an example, like um, talk about the Mein Kampf one. Well, that was a social work journal. Right. So um, in, in the one paper, we took the 12th chapter of Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler's uh, autobiography and political manifesto, and we, the 12th chapter is, is where Hitler's saying, this is what our movement, which later became the Nazi party, should stand for, and this is what it will require of its members, and this is the sacrifices that, that we want. And so we took the phrase, our movement out, and replaced it with intersectional feminism, and then we massaged the wording and added in scholarship that said that any kind of approach to feminism that's not sufficiently uh, intersectional and that's not based in being intersectional for exactly the right reasons, is absolutely the wrong way to go. It needs to be stopped. And there's only one thing, is if we need to, to not quite unify, but get solidarity across feminism that always points to, to whoever the most oppressed is and always pick up the oppression of others, otherwise you're terrible. And we just followed, Hitler lays out in, the, in that chapter, a series of something like 13 points, which we condensed to eight, of how this is to be achieved. And it was just Hitler's plan for making the Nazi party. Boom, boom, boom. This is, you, you must endure many sacrifices. If people try to criticize you 
that means you're doing it right and you should punch back even harder. I mean, just this stuff that's rooted in the politics of grievance and, and yeah. politics of anger. I want to add one, one more thing to that. If you have a question, the key issue and the thing, confusion, like when you, th when you hear social justice, like, oh, social justice, right? When you hear critical, like this is not the same critical as in critical thinking. It's too much, and we're gonna get to a few questions, but if you have some time, why don't you come up and ask, ask about that, because I really think that will help clarify your question. That's one of those Trojan horse words. Yeah, yes. generally though, this is the theoretical humanities. So it's, it's arguments primarily and not, not rigorous uh, data-driven studies. So let's take a couple more questions. What has happened to disown the validity of the articles that you've Oh, they've all been retracted if that's what you were, were asking. Yeah, I mean, some of them we think they shouldn't have been because we, um, we've used exactly the right ideas that, that were already out there, but they have um, retracted them all now, and we, won't, we wouldn't have allowed anything with false data to, to get into the, the domain of knowledge anyway. <laughs> yeah, in the back there. Um, it, it does seem like we've gone down the rabbit hole on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I I'm in the same boat with teenagers, and um, who, and we're we're liberal, and we're activists, and um, I'm a white privileged person who's also experienced discrimination discrimination in corporate America, and and then we have the other thing going on at the top of the the food chain with the president. Um, are you guys going to be, are you working towards simplifying some of this for the general, because what you're talking about is amazing, mm -hmm. but most people give you 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. So counteracting that, are you working on a way to make social media sound bites that explain to people who are 15 and very ideological, <laughs> how racism exists, but this argument is not racist. Yes. That's exactly what... Sit there. Thank you for that, because that's exactly what we're, we're trying to do now. My, my book is going to be accessible to anybody without a background. We're also looking at um, producing uh, sort of educational resources which come at a really beginning level, an intermediate level, and an advanced level, so that people can just grasp the ideas. And then there is Mike Maynard. Now, he is our, our best hope on this because he is capturing everything in action. He's showing people what's happening, and he's sort of explaining it as he goes along. So this, I think, is probably the best resource of all for young people. So yeah, there will be uh, video, there will be articles, there will be... Um, Memes, even to that to that level. Yes. Uh, yeah. And also, I'm I'm taking unpaid leave of absence this year, and one of the things I'm going to do besides write that book is I'm going to write turnkey syllabi for professors and instructors, so they know that there's ah, here's the class. You want to teach a class on this? Here are the texts that you can read. Here is the video. Here are the so it's just turnkey. Boom, right there, free and available online. And there's some sheets of paper back there um, with information. Oh, Bridget is raising her hand. She has them there um, <laughs> that have some information about um, how to 
um, be a producer or a supporter of the film and the film projects that um, Mike Nana is uh, doing. And it also has directions to where the dinner is tonight. And just, just to follow up on that, is this leaking into, into society? I mean, prone is the whole pronoun thing? Be pronouns. Yeah, pronouns are a great example. Pronouns are Oreo cookies just released pronoun cookies. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and you can't get anything from an academic now without them listing their pronouns in their signature. Actually, that even happens to people. I have, uh, people are compelled to do, to, to name their pronouns for whom it makes them feel vulnerable and uncomfortable. For, for instance, uh, I have a, a woman that's spoken to me about this who's a rape victim and does not feel comfortable sharing any kind of information like that in a room full of people, uh, or even feeling people who feel like this is this is a, a game that's being played where I have to like identify that I'm participating in this, or I'd rather keep it private, and then they're they're forced to do it, um, almost as kind of a signaling uh, thing. So uh, yeah, that's that's one of the wanna, best examples. I want to speak to the pronoun thing very briefly. Andy No said to me, a Portland journalist said to me that when you see someone's pronouns in their email, that's not a question of identification that they want you to know. That's a political statement. That is, that is a way to virtue signal what one's politics is. And the very fact that, as far as I know, virtually all of my colleagues have that on their emails. I don't know, I mean, you just start emailing people randomly and see if they have it. Uh, that will show you how deep in the stew is. And, and, and another thing and way in which this is affecting well, which people don't seem to see so much, is within um, dis disability studies and fat studies. So there's been a lot of pressure on organisations like Cancer Research um, not to say that obesity is a risk factor for various kinds of cancer. They've called this um, fat phobic and um, sort of creating a culture of hate. We've seen as well um, people try to get in the way of um, information about autism and about hearing by arguing that it is ableist to not want your child to be autistic or to make a deaf child hear. So there's an awful lot of pressure from activists at the moment who are challenging and disagreeing with medical consensus and even trying to prevent important information to, that people will need to make informed choices get to them. This is a good, uh, a good place to uh, sort of wrap up because this is a, um, an example of how deep the ideology goes. There would be no other um, effort that could influence medicine to say things that are not true, right? There, 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 was, there would be no other, uh, no other effort that could um, but yeah. that, that was the point that we made in the video, right? Is that if we knew that there was a corruption going on from industry that's using money to screw around with, right. with results, we'd all be outraged and say, that's got to stop. Like Big Pharma. Like Big Pharma or like the big sugar scandal where they got all this bogus research that says that, that fat's bad for you and sugar's good for you and this has possibly caused lots of problems. But when, when you have money involved, everybody sees that it's a kind of problem. But it's a political ideology that's doing the corruption instead. It, it's for some reason harder for people to understand, but but it, there's pressures being put on industries. Uh, of course, you also have industries like uh, carrying to cash in on it. But it, then if they do these things the wrong way, they put out some kind of a sneaker. This was a big thing a few weeks ago. Nike put out some kind of sneaker. It didn't do the thing right. There's a gigantic uproar and outcry about about all this. Nike is now a big problem. So. You, 
this, this really has become pretty pervasive. And if you spend much time talking to young people, they speak this language almost fluently um, because they, get, they run into it so frequently. So there, there really is this, this, this concern, and as, as you were speaking to, that there needs to be resources provided at, as Helen said, in basic, intermediate, and more advanced levels to help people understand what's going on and realize the thing that the people that are, are talking this way are asking for is a lot more than what it seems like they're asking for. They're, they're, they're selling, uh, selling the dream and, and somebody's gonna service this nightmare, as, <laughs> as they say in, in customer service. That's, that's a very good way to put it. All right, well, let's thank our, our speakers and uh, feel free to come on up and talk to them.